Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Val Wang. She is the author of Beijing Bastard, Into the Wilds of a Changing China, just out from Gotham Books, and I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today, Val. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be on here. So let's talk a little bit about the title first, Beijing Bastard, where that title comes from, because that's... I think it, it ties into the where the sources ties into some of the themes that you explore in the memoir. Um, so Beijing Bastard is an homage to um, a Chinese underground film that I saw in the mid '90s when I was in college. Um, it was called Beijing Bastards. Um, there were many Beijing bastards in the movie, um, and it was a movie shot by a young filmmaker in Beijing in 1993 about a group of hooligans in Beijing who just get drunk, go to rock concerts, there's a pregnant girl in it, a guy who's, you know, doesn't want to take responsibility, and so they just sort of amble around the city um, doing nothing, and something, I saw the movie um, when I was in college, and something about it just really hooked me into China. I'd never, I mean, I, I'm Chinese-American, I grew up in a an immigrant household where we got a big dose of Chinese culture, of, of the kind of Chinese school, Chinese dancing, fan dancing, karate variety, but none of the rebellious, anti-authoritarian strain that runs through Chinese culture pretty strongly. So that was sort of my first taste of it. And the movie, I really, I recently rewatched it, and I realized it also just had a lot of quasi-documentary footage of Beijing, just of daily life in Beijing. And something about it opened my eyes, and I thought, I really want to go to this place, and I want to meet these people. They seem like kind of long-lost cousins of mine. And it was it was your grandparents who had come over. It was my grandparents who had come over. They fled China in '49 before the Communist Revolution. All four of them, and so my parents were very young at that time, and so they didn't remember much of China. And they both grew up in Southeast Asia and then emigrated to New York where they met. Um, so it had been a long time since my family had been in China. That that um, my direct family, but we still had a lot of family left in China at that point. They were actually in touch with each other quite a bit, so that when you did go over to to China on your own eventually you could immediately connect with family there. Yeah, so I ended up meeting, you know, they gave me the number of my relatives there. I said, just call them up. And, you know, they know you're coming, just call them up. I called them and I just went to go see them. And eventually, when I moved to Beijing, I ended up living with them. And it's just, you know, the kind of thing, I don't know, I didn't grow up in another culture, but with Chinese families, you never met them, but you can stay in their house for a month. No questions asked if you you know, moved to the country. So they just put out a cot in the living room, and I, I lived there for a month in an old courtyard house um, in the old city of Beijing, which is much less romantic than it sounds. There was no hot shower, there was no flush toilet, and it was a kind of a half of a small courtyard house. So very cramped quarters, and we were kind of all on top of each other and, and had uh, quite a contentious month living together that first, my first month in Beijing. Let's talk a little bit about what you were looking for when you decided to to move to Beijing? I mean, I think a lot of people think I was looking for my roots. I mean, I think it's a popular uh, storyline of a Chinese American, but it was really the opposite for me. I really was rebelling from my roots, and I was really looking for myself. You know, that kind of very American journey to find abroad, to find yourself, was what I thought I was going there for, um, and really a, a strong act of rebellion. Right, so the same way that, like, somebody might backpack through Europe or go off to India to, like, <laughs> to join an ashram or something like that, you yours was Beijing. Yeah, mine was Beijing, and Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, was the only foreign language I spoke. So, you know, I figured I'd like to speak the language where I go, so I'll go here. And, you know, I'd always been curious about China. 
going to Chinese school, like hearing all the stories of my parents growing up, um, really being immersed in a version of Chinese culture really made me interested in it. My parents always said we would go back, you know, in the 80s um, when China was really opening up to the world. And they were really optimistic that China was changing a lot. And they said, oh, when you're 13, we'll go back. And of course, I was 13 in the summer of 1989. So after the Tiananmen Square massacre, my parents never spoke about going back. And we just never thought about it anymore. But, you know, the idea had always lodged in my brain that, I, you know, I'd like to see this place. I, my whole family is from there. I, I wonder what it's like there. You've mentioned you've identified as Chinese-American. And this actually is something that comes up in the story at, at a point where you're talking about your relationship with Chinese people there. Because at first they're very hesitant to accept you as American. Mm -hmm. And then you make a very crucial distinction between being American-born Chinese, which is how they see you, and being Chinese-American. Right, yeah. It seems like splitting hairs, mm -hmm. but to me it really seemed like a very crucial difference. That, Especially, I think, going to China made me feel more American than I'd ever felt before, uh, made me see how I hadn't grown up there and a lot of just ways of thinking, ways of walking, ways of talking, ways of gesticulating were very American and I came really into contact with that. So when people said, oh, you've come back, that was a big, oh, you've come back to China. I said, no, I've never been to China before. You know, I'm, I'm coming for the first time and I'm not Chinese, I, I'm American. And, you know, I think as I got there, I, I the longer I stayed, the more I felt like I was taking on Chinese characteristics, whatever, whatever that means. And I did feel like it was, there were two sides of my personality that were kind of coming together more. Beijing Bastards, the film, another sort of part of the influence that it had on you is that when you went there, you very much wanted to be a documentary filmmaker to, to, to make movies about the China that you had seen in that movie. You wanted to go out and find it for yourself and make your own movies about it. Yeah. And, and how did that... the uh, start out for you when you did So I really wanted to meet the filmmaker who made Beijing Bastards. And so within the first, I don't know how, probably two months? No, one month, actually. Uh, my boss told me, oh, here, go make, you know, I was working for an English language magazine. I'll go do a story about this filmmaker who's making a movie about this megalomaniacal English teacher. And the filmmaker happened to be the filmmaker of Beijing Bastards. So it was as if the city was just opening its doors to me and saying, here you go. Here You wanted this? Here you go. It's right here for you. And it was really a magical feeling because I've been in cities. I was living in New York, and, you know, one summer while I was in college, and it, the city wasn't as welcoming to me. It wasn't, it didn't open its doors to me and say, here, stay. Whatever you want, you can have it. So after meeting that filmmaker, you know, hijinks ensue. I'll not spoil them, but um, he sort of was my gateway into this community of underground filmmakers who were in Beijing, who were worked very closely with each other because they didn't have any institutional structure. So they really depended on each other for help, for um, guidance, for encouragement. They lended each other equipment, and they really took me on. I, I helped to subtitle a lot of their movies, and they really took me on as, I wouldn't say an apprentice, but they helped me in my own dream to make a documentary. And they were just incredibly generous, and that was just the way that they kind of treated each other and then included me in that. In talking about the welcoming aspects of living in Beijing, you actually set about to, now at this time, and I assume probably still in the present day, the way that housing was set up is that foreigners had like special housing designated for them. Like you couldn't just get any apartment you wanted in, in China. You had to go to like one of these apartments for foreigners. But mm -hmm. you actually decided you were going to live in Chinese residential. Yeah, it wasn't an aesthetic choice. It was the 
uh, housing for uh, foreigners was incredibly expensive. It was way out of my price range. I mean, it was as expensive as an apartment in New York for something that was not very nice, but because there was such a limited stock, the price was really high. So the only alternative I had, if I wanted to go there and, and um, keep my living expenses low and you know, pursue this dream of being a documentary filmmaker, was to live in Chinese housing, which wasn't, I mean, it, was quite, it wasn't legal, but we weren't sure. You know, no one ever wanted to go ask, like, excuse me, is, is it okay if I live here? Or try to register. And there was a pretty complex registration system. So I just found an apartment through a classified ad and I moved in and just kept a very low profile. Eventually you kind of connected with a few other expats who were in, in similar situations. Yeah, it was amazing to me that actually, you know, in, my, in this city of 10 million people, um, I made friends with a lot of other women who had also come to the city alone, kind of seeking adventure, and they just were very similar to me in a lot of ways, and they all just coincidentally lived in my neighborhood. You know, out of this gigantic city, they all live in my neighborhood. They were really my foundation for, for my life there. And, and let's talk a little bit about that neighborhood, because the way that you describe it, you know, to put this in terms for, I guess, for New Yorkers to understand, it seems like it's kind of like, say, Williamsburg in the very early stages, or, or even maybe before it really sort of, like, kicks in. Yeah, I don't think it was that hip at all. It was, okay. like, really on the edge outside of the third ring. So the, the city is concentric, made up of these concentric circles. So the Forbidden City is in the center. And the second ring road was the old city wall. And then the third ring road was kind of this big kind of interstate almost that ran around the city. And so my apartment was just outside the third ring road, which was the last ring road at the time. Now there's five or six ring roads. By the time it was like, it was like beyond Pluto, basically, to live there. And kind of, if you kept going down my road, it just turned into a dirt road and it turned into the countryside. You know, for whatever reason, it was an area where a lot of people who were undocumented, let's call us, would go. And all of the, it was, the little street was lined with these hairdressing salons that were very thinly disguised brothels, and there were sex shops galore on the street. And it was just a place where people who weren't quite respectable in the rest of the city would find themselves. It was, when I went there, quite a quite a wild place. It was, I mean, the sidewalks were not even paved. It was just packed dirt. It was kind of, still had been the countryside just a few years before. So it was quite quite a wild scene. It was not, it was not a hip scene, mm -hmm. um, but it was a scene where, you know, a lot of people who who weren't fitting in elsewhere in the city found their way too. The nature of the neighborhood was one of the things that you kind of had to keep from your parents during your periodic sort of like when they would check in with you, right? Yeah, and they came um, to China for the first time in 50 years while I lived there. Um, I persuaded them that it was a good idea for them to come back and no one was going to capture them as I got off the plane. Um, they, you know, wanted to come see my apartment, of course, and I just said, you know what, it's really far out of the city, and it, and it was far, and, and we just don't, there's nothing there, it's like there's nothing to see, and I just wanted to keep those two parts of my life very separate. And Because I'm like a friend of my brother's visited, and he said, do your parents know where you live? I mean, it was just, everything was very basic in the apartment, and, and so I, I kept that, I kept that from them. Right, because your parents, I mean, we touched on this a little bit in terms of like you were actually going to China not to find your roots, but to, to find yourself. It seems like that was one of the aspects that actually made your parents kind of hostile to the whole idea of you going to China in the first place. Yeah, because, I mean, they knew me. They knew that I was really searching for adventure and searching for something 
uh, yeah, that would be exciting for me, and, and that scared them. And I think it also scared them to think, to think back on their own t leaving and to kind of pick open the wounds that had had kind of scabbed over but weren't really healed underneath. And I think that me going there opened that can of worms for them that I think they didn't really want to be opened. So when you were there, you did a lot of journalism and you were working with the documentary community that we talked about and actually did start work on your own project. But towards the end of the memoir, you talk a little bit about how, for example, you applied to John Hopkins for creative writing. And, and that was what brought you back. It was grad school that brought you back. How did that process sort of come about of that, that transition from I want to be a documentary filmmaker to I want to, you know, I want to do creative writing or, you know, and, and maybe it, maybe it's not as stark as I make it sound just yeah. that. Both of them were kind of these secret desires I had, secret ambitions that I never really could share with my parents or even myself. I think writing was actually buried farther down. It was something I'd always done as a child. I'd always written stories. I'd always been interested in writing, but never could imagine that it would be something I could do for my life or a living or really seriously. I think I just couldn't admit to myself or my parents that that's what I wanted to do. And somehow documentary filmmaking, it was easier for me to say, yes, I would like to be a documentary filmmaker when I met when I met these filmmakers. And would you help me do that? Um, it just seemed easier for some reason. And I mean, I think maybe because they were very collaborative and they um, always needed help with stuff and then would offer help in return. And it was a very open uh, community and, and I just fell very easily into it. And I, I really loved the people that, that I met doing that did it. And writing was something, you know, it's something you do alone in your room and people can encourage you, but that's about all. And so I think that when the documentary went south, I, and you know, I was getting to my late 20s, it was like, what do you really want to do? You know, is documentary filmmaking, is that it? Or, you know, why don't you try to write? You have all these stories and this is something you've always wanted to do and never had the permission to do so so why not try that you're you know in your late 20s and it's, it's time to put a stake in the ground what prompted you in like 12 15 years after the events that you're writing about what was sort of the prompt to be like you know it's, t it's time to tell the story well i actually started writing it right after i came back and i spent many years writing it um, just when the memories were fresh and just kind of getting a lot of a lot of the story down on paper but it took me a long, a lot longer to figure out what the stories were actually about. And I think that that, that process of digesting the stories took as long as actually writing them. So what is in there, like the basic stories have been there for a long time, but to realize, oh, actually the story is a lot about my relationship with my family. That took another five years to come to that and to admit it and to put it in the story. Um, and, and without it, it didn't make a lot of sense, a lot of the stories that I was telling. So the whole process, I think, just of writing, emotionally digesting, rewriting, selling, editing was, you know, it's 12 years now. Mm -hmm. So You were doing other forms of storytelling during that sort of like five-year gestation period <laughs> that you're talking about between like getting it down and then figuring out, okay, the, you know, this is how the material has to go. Let's talk a little bit about what you were doing in that interim period. Okay. Yeah, I made a living as a, a multimedia producer. So I worked on some documentary films. Um, and eventually I did a project called Planet Takeout, 
that was um, an interactive documentary about Chinese takeouts uh, in Boston where I live now. So I Im immersed myself in these. I, it was a nine-month project. So I just hung out in four different takeouts in Boston and trying to get stories across the counter, sort of between the community where the takeouts are and the workers of the, of the takeout um, to kind of see how these local takeouts, where everyone who goes there lives in the neighborhood, how these takeouts really operate as these meeting places of people of different cultures and how, what kinds of relationships they build across the counter and what place these takeouts have in the local ecology of the neighborhood and what these takeouts can tell us about the neighborhoods. So it was a lot about almost local neighborhood history. So I was in Roxbury and Dorchester and Jamaica Plain in Boston. And so these takeouts could tell us about local history, but also about immigration, global immigration patterns to the city. So there are these really special, I mean, I just love these takeouts. You know, it just started with this fascination with these takeouts as these centers of, of activity. And then it just developed into, into a story about the relationships that, that, that blossom in these takeouts. Yeah, it sounds like a very different kind of storytelling than writing a memoir. Is there anything from that process of making Planet Takeout that kind of helped you when it came time to to reframe the story of Beijing Bastards? I don't know. I think it almost as Beijing Bastards helped me with that because mm -hmm. I think like the foundation of a lot of my work is to tell these very intimate stories of people whose lives are unfolding against a, a historical backdrop of some sort. So through this very small lens of these people's stories, you can see global immigration patterns. You can see you know, the history of Roxbury over the last 40 years through this one. There was one ticket that had been there for 40 years, owned by the same guy who still works there, who's like 75 years old. You know, And so you could, like that, that aspect of seeing history through this tiny keyhole of people's lives is something that I think came from this book and that I felt like was the way that I like to tell stories. And as you were grappling with the process of, you know, recognizing that it's like, okay, this is actually a book about my relationship with my family, <laughs> and so I have to talk yeah. about my relationship <laughs> with my family. Yeah, it's uh, like pulling teeth. <laughs> were there other memoirs or, or memoir writers that could serve as models or, or, you know, that you would look at and say like, Okay, this is getting at what I, how I want to do this. A lot of this book is it was inspired by reading Berlin stories, um, the Christopher Isherwood novel. That same sense of you know, history is seen through the lens of these individual lives, and it's not the kind of people's lives. The stories of the people are not illustrations of history. They're just people, very textured lives of people. And in that, he stays very detached. He's very much a cipher. You don't learn very much about him, but you kind of see through his eyes. And that was my model for this. And I felt like, um, you know, at some point it wasn't working, you know, when uh, after I'd written it. And then I found another book that he'd written later in his life called Christopher and His Kind about that same period, time period in Berlin, but really about his motivations for going. And he said to Christopher, he wrote in the third book, to Christopher, Berlin meant boys. So it was all about his relationships with men that unfolded there and the true reasons he had gone and, and all the stories about himself that had not made it into that, into that, mem into the novel. And so I read that as I was, you know, struggling with trying to put my family into it. And I kind of felt like his level of honesty 
in writing that second book was was really inspiring to me and just just gave me a lot of courage. Now that you have one memoir under your belt and a documentary project like Planet, Planet Takeout, where is your creative career headed now? That's a really good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. I think the day after this finishes, I'll, I'll figure it out. But I, I mean, I hope there's more. There's definitely will be more writing and probably more filming. Um, but I don't, I don't know more memoirs, I would say. But, you know, don't take my word for that. <laughs> but yeah, writing a memoir is excruciatingly difficult. That level of self-examination is, is quite uncomfortable and perhaps not something I'll take on lightly again. Well, it is done to very compelling effect in this memoir, which is Beijing Bastard, Into the Wilds of a Changing China. I have been talking with the author, Val Wang, and you have been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you're subscribed to this podcast through iTunes, thank you for that. If you aren't yet, it's very easy to do, and then you'll be able to find out whenever new episodes are uploaded and listen to them right away. You might also rate and review the podcast, which will make it a little bit easier for other folks to find it in iTunes down the line as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Take care.